Thanks so much, Jan and Pat, for taking initiative with that. And also be praying for us. We've applied for a, a trellis grant through the Covenant Church to help keep costs as low as possible for people. So just be praying that we would have favor there and uh, that they would give us the funds that we've requ- requested from them. I'm going to be speaking briefly out of Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first four books of the New Testament are Gospels. They are accounts of the life and teachings of Jesus. Mark is the shortest one. We've been going through it. We're moving into the final few chapters, and we're moving into the final week of uh, Jesus' life pre-crucifixion. So I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 9. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, and she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. And some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Here's a little bit of context for this passage. Verse 1 and 2, this event takes place a few days before Jesus is crucified. Uh, Jerusalem would have swollen to between three to five times of its size as pilgrims come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish Passover. And remember that Passover is a celebration of the original rescue of God's people from Pharaoh and the empire of Egypt. And so every time the Passover was celebrated, especially in the first century, where the Jewish people were under the oppression of a new empire, Rome, and a new emperor, the king of Rome, Caesar, this was a time of escalating tension and anticipation because the Jewish people were thinking, when is God's new exodus going to happen? God rescued us from pagan rulers then. When's he going to do it now? Because God's people aren't meant to live under the rule of uh, non-God-fearing leaders. We're supposed to be under the rule of God. So at the Passover, with all these people, with heightened tension, kind of two things happened. The Jewish people were kind of, as the closer you got to Passover, the more excited and anticipatory and revolutionary the talk about following God and um, overthrowing Rome one day became. Rome got understandably nervous because you have a lot of people And there's kind of this fermenting idea of revolt and insurrection. So you kind of, you add a few more garrisons, you add a little bit more security here and there because you don't want riots to break out. Riots sometimes would break out. Sometimes people would get trampled. Sometimes there would be messiahs who would say, now is the time, this is the Passover. We're going to seize this opportunity and try and overthrow Rome. And Rome would have to kill and then often crucify the leaders of these movements to teach people No. Rome's in charge. Caesar is king. 
you do what you're told and everything will be okay. You step out of line and we will uh, put the boot on your neck. So this is a time of heightened tension. The text doesn't necessarily tell us that, but we need to understand that to get the most out of the text in terms of history. So it's this really charged atmosphere, and now even more so because at the start of the week, this prophet, Messiah figure, Jesus, came into this city, and, and the crowds love this guy. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A lot of people have messianic expectations of Jesus. They want him to overthrow Rome. So Rome is fearing a political revolt, and the religious leaders want to kill and arrest, want to arrest and kill Jesus. But they're trying to figure out how to do it without the crowds turning on them because they know that this guy is beloved. But he is threatening their authority, their power, their way of life. So they're kind of like, how do we do this without the crowds knowing? Because they will turn on us. Forget about Rome. They will turn on us. So the people may riot. So we've got to figure out a way to get Jesus uh, by stealth, in secret, slyly, deviously. The crowds love Jesus because he's a miracle-working Messiah figure who offers them hope for a political overthrow, but the religious leaders are deeply, deeply threatened. Now, a few days before the Passover, Jesus is at this house of a guy called Simon the leper, and verse 4 and 5, an unnamed woman comes onto the scene and anoints Jesus with a tremendously expensive perfume. And not just, it's not that the perfume is expensive and then she uses a little bit. In its totality, maybe today it would be worth somewhere between thirty dollars and $40,000 and she just dumps the whole thing on Jesus' head. So it's an opulent act of extravagant devotion and worship. And Mark doesn't name who it was, but Matthew does. He says it was some of the disciples of Jesus, not just the religious leaders. But Mark leaves it more vague, I think to infer that almost everybody in the room was thinking the same thing. And people were even saying to each other, why would you waste this perfume? It's so valuable. I mean, the at least you could have sold it and given the money to the poor. You could have done something useful with it. And instead, this woman has just essentially squandered this amazing resource. It says that they rebuked her, or in Greek, you could also translate it, scolded her. These people were like, shame on you. What a reckless, foolish, self-indulgent, extravagant waste if you really wanted to show your piety to Jesus, you would have sold this and given the money to the poor. If you really cared about God, shame on you. But then in verse 6 to 9, there's this really amazing turn in the story. Jesus rebukes the rebukers. And Jesus scolds the people who are scolding this woman. He says, leave her alone. Get off her back. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And so you have this, just this huge um, juxtaposition of the, the small little crowd in this home who sees this woman's act as irresponsible and reckless and wasteful, but Jesus sees it as appropriate and generous and praiseworthy. You couldn't have a stronger contrast. And then he says, I tell you the truth, which whenever you see it in the translation, in the, the Greek is amen, which is amen. This is Jesus amening himself. He's going to tell you something that you can take to the bank. I tell you the truth. 
Whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is a text I would not naturally gravitate to. Speaking expositionally puts it in my path. I steep in it. And I kind of have to do a sort of a part one and almost a part two into next week. It's going to bleed into verses 10 and 11 next week because this is so rich. I spent a lot of time just chewing over this passage, turning it over and turning it over in my mind, putting myself in the story, trying to watch it play with it as a movie, praying about it, reflecting on it. And as I did, I kind of felt like I noticed something provocative or interesting every single time I opened it up. But I want to share four things that kind of popped out to me that I want to at least put before us this morning. The first is this. Loving Jesus will always prompt criticism. Loving Jesus will always prompt criticism. Now, the asterisk there is, you'll probably actually be okay if your uh, relationship with Jesus is kept very private, very personal. I honor Jesus in my heart, and my personal relationship with Jesus stays very personal and private. But if your devotion in any way, in, uh, in word or deed, spills out into your everyday life, criticisms are going to come your way. It, it's just, it's inevitable, and I see that in the passage. And what's interesting about the passage is that the criticism comes both from non-believers, and other people who are following Jesus. And so I think you need to understand that if you are following Jesus, given enough time, you will receive criticism from not just people who aren't following Jesus, but from people who are following Jesus. Now, the, way, the criticism, criticism you get from the people who are not following Jesus, you can probably anticipate those, right? They're because they think what you're doing is, is dumb, or as we'll see in a moment, a waste of time, or just foolish, or strange... But often I've found criticism from fellow believers, other disciples, can come just as, just as often. Sometimes it happens because, let's say, I'm kind of coasting in my relationship with God. I'm avoiding going to some of these difficult places like Freedom Session might lead me into kind of holding God at bay. I'm not rejecting God. I'm kind of, maybe I'm going coming to church, reading my Bible, doing some stuff, but I'm not really pressing into what God has for me. But then I notice a Christian brother or sister who is. I watch as a young family is willing to move across Canada to serve Jesus. Or I hear about how someone's stepping out in faith to help lead people into greater freedom. Or I see people in ways, big or small, saying yes to Jesus. You can have two reactions. You can be inspired by that and be like, I want to learn from that person how to follow Jesus more faithfully. But you can also double down into defensiveness. And I've experienced that coming from my own heart. I've felt that from other people. Oh, oh, look at this person being so high and mighty, their own demissions and blah, 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 I don't know. Like, I just think that you should just like not wear Jesus on your sleeve all the time. Like, you know, yeah, we all follow Jesus, but like, keep it tamp down a bit like you don't have to be all extreme and stuff you can there can be there can be this anxiety that comes from a sense of conviction where you know in your heart that this person should be a model and light to you and you're feeling convicted because the holy spirit is saying you're saying no to me and this person's saying yes but we can kind of say oh that that's such a waste that's so dumb but i i you know i certainly don't think that that that's a way to honor god and that can happen in all kinds of contexts. It can happen in a church context 
where we can secretly judge or resent other people who are following Jesus faithfully, who are devoting themselves to him. Maybe in your friendship circle at school. I think this is probably especially pertinent to people who go to a Christian school where kind of everybody's a Christian. And yet there's some students who are really actively engaging in their faith and trying to go, and other students who are like, come on, like, we're all kind of Christian here, so you don't need to like try and impress anybody. You can just kind of take your foot off the gas if you want. Loving Jesus will always prompt criticism. Sometimes it'll come from non-believers. Sometimes it'll come from believers, but it'll come from hearts who are resistant to Jesus. And you just need to know that. And I say that to say, follow Jesus anyways. No matter how you live your life, people are going to criticize you. You might as well get criticized for following Jesus faithfully. You cannot avoid criticism. You might as well get criticized because as best as you know how, you are trying to devote yourself, heart, soul, mind, and strength to Jesus. Number two, worship is the priority in the Christian life. It's interesting that the disciples have the same thought that I probably would have had, which is, whoa, that's a lot of money to, I mean, you could have just like done a little dab of anointing on Jesus, maybe like a cup, but the whole thing, like all of it really, that does seem kind of wasteful. It seems unnecessarily opulent. But Jesus says what she has done is something beautiful. And he says, the poor can wait. And you'll always have the poor to serve. You'll always be able to do good works. But here I am. You're not always going to have me. And this woman has seen this opportunity, this small window to lavish upon Jesus. Now, I don't want to um, stretch the principle there too far. But I think a principle from that is sometimes, I know I'm very tempted to do this. Sometimes I am tempted to bypass worship in my daily life in order to get to the deliverables of serving Jesus. Setting aside 15, 30, 45 minutes, an hour, first thing in the morning, maybe before anyone else gets up in my home, to sit at Jesus' feet, to open the scriptures, to pray, to worship him, that can sometimes feel like time that would be better served doing something useful like helping the poor, helping my family, doing good things, not avoiding Jesus, serving Jesus, bringing glory to God in a tangible way. And I love that Jesus says actually the priority is to worship me, not out of an egocentrism, but out of a sense that I am actually the author of life. And so the Christian life flows from a place of worship. And this is important because a lot of Christians want the fruit of, of a life that is grounded in Jesus, but they don't take the time to actually lavish praise on Jesus, spend time with him, cultivating a personal relationship. And this is often, um, when, when you ask people, you, this is the, the tell is when you ask people, what's the point of the Christian life? Because if the answer is things like serving the poor, <clears throat> wrong answer. If the answer is being a good person, <clears throat> wrong answer. The point of the Christian life is to worship Jesus. Now, that worship takes on lots of different expressions. It's not just when we're here on Sunday singing songs. That's one expression of worship. Romans 12 says, living a life in service to God in all areas is your spiritual act of worship, being a living sacrifice that is laying down your agenda and going into your marriage, family, all these places with the agenda of God. That's learning what that means and then doing it. That's being worshipful. 
But Jesus says that these, the works that come from a relationship with me, you won't be able to sustain them and they'll become a burden to you if you're not actually connecting with me. And that's something that I really felt like the Holy Spirit just kept hammering in my heart this week because I'm so pragmatically minded, it's easy for me to hit the pause button on taking time to worship and celebrate Jesus just in my own relationship with him and move on to all the different opportunities that I have to serve, serve him and love him and love other people in his name. But that's a real danger. Number three, I'm going to steal a clever title of a book that I read once. Worship, sorry, this is, the idea that worship is a priority is really difficult in a context culturally where worship is seen as a royal waste of time. Understanding that our priority is to worship Jesus is very difficult in a world that sees worship, devotion to Jesus, as a royal waste of time. And let's be honest, it totally does. In the eyes of the world, think of the time and energy and money that you invest directly or indirectly in exalting the name of Jesus. Doing ministry in his name, singing songs of praise to him, living a life of generosity. People who don't know Jesus, if they were to have their guard down and to give them a safe space would say, maybe it's somewhat commendable, but it's a, kind of, it's a waste of time. You're just throwing stuff into a black hole. I'm glad that maybe you're inspired to do that and it has some tangential benefit to the community. But if you were to ask me, there'd be better ways to spend your time, energy, or money. Most people think what's happening right now is a royal waste of time. Why would you squander a Sunday morning, an opportunity to sleep in, to chill, to go do something fun? Why would you waste your time showing up here singing songs to Jesus. People definitely think if you are participating sacrificially in the offering, that that is a royal waste of time in terms of your money. I know there would be non-Christians in my life who if they got my little tax receipt, they would be like, okay, I get like, you know, you know, a few bucks here and there throughout the year. But the thousands and thousands of dollars to this institution, to the church, whatever, what a royal waste. There are so many better things you could do with your money. Most people would look at a lot of what we do as Christians and say, there's something way more useful that we could do with our time, energy, and money. You commit to showing up, not even just to church, but to teach Sunday school? Like with those kids, what a royal waste of time. You set, so let me get this straight. So you turn off Netflix at night, you structure some time to pray, and you pray not just for your own needs, but for other people, people who may never know, other people within your community. What a royal waste of time. You'd be doing so much more with your time. Serving other people at work leading and serving in such a way that maybe they get ahead in their career and you take a hit because you're trying to advance, help advance them. You're not living out of a me-first mentality. What a waste of opportunity. Why would you squander an opportunity? I mean, you can be nice. There's nothing wrong with being nice, but 
man, don't waste that opportunity. And while the world sees worship and devotion to Jesus as a royal waste of time, their emphasis is on the waste, right? It's such a royal waste. It's good for nothing. It goes nowhere. But the secret for those who are in Christ, we understand, oh, I understand it looks like a royal waste of time, but it's not because it's a royal waste of time. We're doing this for a king. Now, it's a king because you don't understand. It looks like it's not going anywhere. It looks useless. It looks fruitless. But all these things that we're doing, in ways big and small, we're proclaiming in thought, word, and deed, Jesus' majesty, his kingship, his authority, his lordship in our lives. And when we worship, we're ascribing worthship. We're saying he is worthy above all. He is Lord of all. He is King of all. And I want to learn how to live my life as a student, as a spouse, as an employee, as a community member, as a family member. I want to learn how to ascribe worship to Jesus by how I live because he is the true king. And that's what this woman recognizes because in the Old Testament, kings are the ones who are anointed with oil. But never this much oil. And not oil that is this expensive because this is a, a king of a different category. This is a new kind of king. And while everyone's like, it's Passover, Mas- uh, the Messiah's gonna come, overthrow Rome. He's gonna be ex- high and exalted on his throne and no longer is Rome gonna be on us. We're gonna be over top of everyone else. That's the hope that we have for the king that God's gonna send us. Jesus is coming and this woman realizes he's gonna conquer He's going to be victorious, but it won't come at the cost of his enemies. He's going to do all these things for his enemies. And he will be high and exalted and lifted up, but it will not be on a throne of power. It will be on a cross. This is a different kind of king. But make no mistake, her actions say, this is a king. And I know it looks like what I'm doing is a royal waste of time. And in one sense that it is, but it's not a waste because, number four, our treasures the treasures of our time, the treasures of our energy, the treasure of our money, when it's invested in Christ, in his kingdom agenda, it is transformed into an eternal legacy. Notice that the, what the woman is given because of her act. She's given an, a legacy of eternal value, value. He says, I tell you the truth, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. When you serve Jesus wholeheartedly, even if it's imperfectly, he will honor that. He will receive that as something beautiful to him. And he will turn it into a legacy that will far outlive your life and touch lives that you won't even know about until the other side of heaven. And it's a legacy that you can't get from investing in anything else. That's why Jesus says, be careful. Don't store up all your treasures on earth. Store them up in heaven. And that's what he means. Invest things in and through me That is the sure way to make sure that you actually don't waste your life. The world will see your investment in the things of God as wasteful. Maybe you will even be tempted yourself at times in your life to say, maybe this is a waste. Maybe I could benefit if I kept more of this money, held back serving, closed ranks on my life and said, this is the lifestyle that I want and I'm going to protect it. No longer am I going to be willing to be brokenhearted and poured out and carry other people's burdens. I've got enough stuff of my, of my own to handle. 
We may be tempted to think that. But we ha- I want you to remember this story. And I want you to remember that investing in Jesus and in his agenda is never a waste. It is never wasteful. It is never fruitless. It is never irresponsible. God will use your offering, meager or mighty, to shape a story of redemption through the lives of your actions, this church, into the community, and the other side of the world, in Kenya, all over. Now, I could probably end there. I'll pick up on some other things next week, but uh, there's one more thing I want to do to see in the passage. If you pull out from the passage, Mark 14, you start looking at the scope of Jesus' story, you might, be re- you might remember that this acts as a kind of bookend for the Gospels, in the sense that at the start of his life and at the end of his life, Jesus is given, um, kind of lavish treasures are given to Jesus, right? Wise men come from the East, they give Jesus these treasures. And then here, not a, not a, not a male who has power and, um, and social standing, it's a woman, but she gives this treasure of this expensive perfume to Jesus. But these were treasures that from a worldly perspective, from a human perspective, uh, Jesus already had in a sense. We don't believe that Jesus started to exist when he was born. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, was eternally existing. He incarnated himself and became fully human, but he was, in a sense, the Prince of Heaven. He had all of the power, all of the glory, all of the majesty. There was nothing that he lacked so when we see people giving their treasures to Jesus, that is something that they could have easily taken themselves, taken himself. But there was one treasure, there was one thing that Jesus treasured that he had to come for, that he couldn't, that his divine nature didn't simply entitle him to. And that treasure was you. So the gospel proclaims that you are the costly treasure that Jesus came to redeem and to reclaim. Yes, you were a lost treasure. Might have been, might be a very tarnished treasure. Might be a, a broken treasure. Maybe you think you're a treasure beyond repair, but in the hands of Jesus, no life is hopeless. And when we give our lives to him, he can turn our stories upside down or right side up, depending on how you're looking at it into a story that proclaims his goodness, that he is a kind of king who can bring beauty from ashes. See, that's why in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he had it all in heaven. He didn't need anything. Yet for your sakes, he became poor. He emptied himself so that through his poverty, ultimately seen on the cross, through him giving up everything, and standing in your place of judgment, you might become rich. You might be given in his name, by his power, by grace alone, not because of what you've done, but by simply receiving that gift, just like Jesus received that offering of perfume, by simply receiving it, we could have new life now and life continuing forevermore. I see this story about a woman who lavishes her treasure on Jesus, and I'm reminded that he treasures me and he treasures you, and he showed it by going to the cross. If you treasure him, then show it 
through a life poured out in devotion to him. Let's pray. Jesus, when we see you for who you are, our response ought to be extravagant. And we may have people around us who make fun of us, who criticize us, who think we're strange or weird or dumb. Or maybe worse, they see us squandering our potential. But God, may we recognize that worship, although it looks like a royal waste of time, it is a royal investment. It is never wasted because it is received by you as a beautiful thing. So even now, God, as we worship you, may you be given glory. We love you. Continue to reveal yourself to us that we may live lives that are poured out in service of you. Amen.